What a wonderful word for us this morning. If you're going to overcome, how are you going to do it unless you do it in the name of Jesus? So I appreciate that praise song for us. Have you ever uh, been driving before and following somebody in a caravan and you've had a difficult time following? You know, maybe uh, you had a hard time keeping up, traffic got difficult, or maybe they took a wrong turn or you took a wrong turn or whatever it might be. Um, well, I once served as a driver for a trip to New York City when I was in college. As a matter of fact, some good friends of mine, Chrissy and Nathan Trevitt, are here. And Nathan was the other driver in this 15-passenger van we drove to Manhattan whenever I was in college. And um, it's driving in, through Man- Manhattan is one thing. Driving a 15-passenger van through Manhattan is a totally other thing completely... And then driving in a caravan following another 15-passenger van through Manhattan is impossible, but we did it. So one night, uh, we're in Manhattan trying to make our way back to Long Island. I don't know what happened. We couldn't take the tunnel we typically would take, so we had to find our way to the bridge. So I'm the follower in the follow vehicle, and the lead vehicle is going, and somehow at the last minute realizes that was our turn back there. So just whips it to the left. I follow right behind, and we end up just fine, except... There's this huge pylon holding up this bridge. And so he's right there with the pylon right here, and I'm right behind him, and we got nowhere to go. At the same time, every single New York City cab driver lined up behind us on the freeway, and they were thrilled, you know, and they lay on the horn to say, way to go, good job, you know. I think they even, like, shouted nice things outside of the windows at us while we were driving. Well, when I was a college minister, the students would say that there was a certain character that would show up in moments like this, and they called the character Stress Wes. Well, Stress Wes was in full force at this moment, and back in my day, we didn't use cellular phones to communicate, we used walkie-talkies. So I had a walkie-talkie, and I'm saying, what are you doing, Rob? We've got to get around here. Do you see every cab driver behind me? I think we're going to die. Let's go. He doesn't answer, so Stress West, not me, but Stress West throws the walkie-talkie to the back of the 15-passenger van. And all of a sudden, the lead vehicle throws their van into reverse. And I'm like, where are they going? So they slam into the front of us and move us just enough inches that he can make his way around the pylon. I I follow him out, and I keep thinking, I should have been in the lead. I should have been in the lead, you know. But I learned a lesson that day, and the lesson I learned is that following someone can sometimes be very, very difficult. Well, a couple thousand years ago, a great invitation was offered that's still being offered today. And it's a two-word invitation, and it sparked the greatest movement that our world has ever seen before. And the two-word invitation were, was, follow me. So I want to ask you to follow me to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in the second book of the New Testament. Uh, Mark in chapter 1, there at the beginning. And I'm going to read to you this morning from verse 16 through 20. We're talking about Jesus here, okay? So it says, as he, talking about Jesus, as Jesus was passing along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me. Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in their boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Several weeks ago, I was 
thinking about the disciples and what they did after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Um, Because what they did in that moment was a very dramatic thing. They literally committed their lives in that moment to carry what they had seen and heard around the world. Now, you have to remember, this wasn't like the vision for their lives when they were kids. It wasn't something they had gone to school to train for. It wasn't something that their parents, you know, were so excited. We can't wait to grow up and follow a stranger into every corner of the world. They weren't praying that for their kids. These were guys who were living normal lives. The four we're looking at were fishermen, and a lot of the guys that followed them were fishermen. And their normal lives, and all of a sudden they have an encounter when Jesus walks into their life. They're headed this way. Jesus goes this way. They turn, and they follow him. And they follow him and went after him. And it took them to places they probably would have never gone before. They endured great persecution because they decided to follow him. And they made this the priority of their lives, sacrificing livelihoods, family ties, comfort, um, and own and own. You see... I've heard some great sermons and messages in my life before. Um, I've seen some pretty powerful things happen in the lives of people that I knew at camps and retreats and mission trips and other places, unexplainable things. I've met some people that I would say were life-altering encounters. And the truth is I walked away from those things and I actually told people about it. But when the disciples saw and experienced this following Jesus, it couldn't get out of their minds. They could have just said, you know, wow, that was neat, you know, and tell somebody about, yeah, you should have seen it, it was really cool, and keep on going with their lives. But it absolutely changed the trajectory of their lives because of this encounter and because of what they had heard and what they seen and what they believed. They could not keep silent about it. And so they now lived for the sole purpose of carrying what they had seen and experienced to the ends of the earth. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus said, follow me, and they did. And they showed us what it looks like to follow Jesus. So this morning, I want us to look at Jesus' invitation to the disciples, what it entailed, and what it means for us. Mark's gospel um, when it quickly begins by going back into the Old Testament and looking at um, the prophetic stories about a, a forerunner to the Messiah. And then he introduces us to John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, his ministry, the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Christ, and then all of a sudden introduces us to Christ's ministry very quickly. It's a fast-paced thing when you're reading through the book of Mark. And in verse 15, right before I read verse 16, in verse 15, for the first time, we hear Jesus' voice in Mark's gospel, where he says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In other words, all that we have been waiting for has taken place. God has grown near and now repent. And we know that repent means to turn from something and towards something else. And so, biblically, we would take that to mean turn from those things that God doesn't like and turn towards those things that God does like. And then he says, and believe the good news. Well, the good news, that good news comes from a Greek word, euangelion. And we translate that word from the Greek to mean good news or the word gospel. And we're used to that word gospel in the church. We hear it a lot. In fact, nowadays, the context almost always when you hear the word gospel is in a Christian sense. But, of course, in Mark's day, that's not the way it was. When they heard the word euangelion, it had a whole different connotation for them. What it would mean for them, it would mean um, 
history-changing news, you know, or life-altering, you know, uh, something that happened in history that just changed lives. Um, That was kind of the idea, as opposed to regular, ordinary, run-of-the-mill daily news. So what you should imagine the people thought whenever Jesus said, repent and believe the euangelion, what they heard in their minds would be kind of like if there was some great battle that was fought. And at the battle they won, and so they would send a herald or an evangelist into the cities to go in and declare the euangelion, the good news, which is we fought the battle, we have won, you are no longer slaves, you are free. That's what they imagined when all of a sudden Jesus says, and believe the euangelion. That's the connotation, repent and believe the good news I bring, which would mean something's happened in history that's changed your status forever. Tim Keller gave great insight to this for me. He wrote, right there you can see the difference between Christianity and all other religions, including no religion. The essence of other religions is advice. Christianity is essentially news. Well, what does that mean? Well, if religion is primarily about advice, the message that gets communicated is something like, this is what you must do if you want to be able to approach God. Or this is the way you should live if you want to be accepted by God or to attain eternal life. These are the things you should do. So it's advice that's given. On the other hand, the euangelion, or the good news, or the gospel, is this is what has been done. This happened. This is how Jesus did live and die. And because of it, the way has been paved for you so that you can be in relationship with God. So you understand that's completely different from advice. It is news. It's something people need to hear and know. So in Mark's account, we see that at the same moment that Jesus starts to speak about the kingdom of God, he also begins to call his followers, his disciples. And these guys would make up Jesus' core group of friends and um, followers for his lifetime. And in hindsight, what we know Jesus is thinking or doing in this moment is he has a task to gather around him this community of followers that he could teach so that they might be the bearers of this euangelion once he's gone. So they would spend a period of about three years with him, and they would hear what he taught, they would watch the miracles he performed, see the way he lived, do his will, so that they would be prepared to carry this news into all the world. So I want us to look back at the scriptural account that we have here in the book of Mark. It says that as Jesus was passing along by the Sea of Galilee, so this is in the area of Capernaum, this is kind of Jesus' headquarters for ministry in the gospel. And the Sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake. Um, It was a lot of fishing took place there. Josephus, who's that great historian of the Jews, he said there would be up to about 330 fishing boats out on this lake each day. Um, And one of the families that, uh, for a livelihood, fished there were Simon and his brother Andrew. And so Jesus is evidently walking down close to the shoreline because these guys are working. The verse says um, that the guys they were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen, because, in other words, they're not just having fun. You know, they're working. You know, they're casting the nets because they're fishermen, you know, as Mark's telling us. So they're working, and Jesus must have been been close enough to the river or the sea that they could hear him. And he calls out to them, hey, guys, come follow me. And I'm one of those people that like to imagine what if life were like it is in the movies, you know? 
like all of a sudden you're just normal day. You walk across Main Street and people start coming out of the shops and there's this soundtrack that starts and people break out into song and dance, you know, like a musical. And it's like, wouldn't that be unbelievable if that's how life really works? That's why I love those flash mob things. You know, you're watching, you're like, that really happened. I would love that if that happened to me. Or, you know, if it was dramatic, like all of a sudden somebody makes some speech that's unexpected and somebody just stands up and starts the slow clap. And then one by one, everybody's charging until it's, you know, and they're cheering. Well, life's not like that. It's not dramatic, right? But I think sometimes we read the Gospels and we imagine that's how it is, that all of a sudden Jesus has got a glow on him, walking down by the seashore, hair's blowing. You know, soundtrack as the water hits the rocks, you know, and it's like, it just, it smells great, it looks great, and all of a sudden, follow me. These two guys drop their nets, and somebody, you know, and they just start the slow clap, and it's this dramatic thing. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not how it was in Galilee. I wasn't there, I just know that's not how life is. It was probably smelly because there were a lot of fish it was probably dirty it was probably loud and whenever these guys started following nobody applauded they probably raised their eyebrows they said you're fishermen we fish today where are you going who is this guy what are you leaving behind you know because the picture is this scene of nets laying by the shore and they've turned and walked away from him that's a dramatic thing but probably not a dramatic scene uh, that we see there and so Jesus calls to them, he says, follow me. And what's the calling to? Verse 17 of the verse says, follow me, Jesus said to them, and I will make you fish for people. Now that makes sense to us because we go to church and we're like, you know, from a kid, we, I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. We know this stuff. We know what it means here. But, they, you know, what, what did that mean to them? I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fish for people. It's a really interesting concept. It's not the first time it shows up in Scripture. In fact, in the Old Testament, a couple prophets talk about fishing for people. Amos says that there will be people caught with fish hooks in their mouth. And the idea is not, uh, it's gruesome because it's the idea they're being dragged to judgment. Uh, Jeremiah writes about it, Jeremiah 16, 16. He says, speaking on the Lord's behalf, I am about to send for many fishermen. This is the Lord's declaration. And they will fish for them. And then he talks about how they'll be hunted for because God's, we're going to hunt you down and bring you to judgment before a righteous God. Now, Jesus takes the metaphor of fishing for men and turns it on his head and says, you're not to go fish for them to bring them to judgment, but to rescue them from judgment. That's what Jesus is communicating here. And right off the bat, we see that there is a price to following Jesus. There's a price, there's a cost to discipleship. Salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you. R.L. Taylor writes, The price of discipleship is further illustrated by their actions. They not only left their livelihood, they also broke family ties and tradition by leaving their father. Let's look at this for a moment. Because I can imagine there might be a little bit of squirming going on in the pews here. Because deep down, or maybe right on the surface, we don't really like this idea that Simon, Andrew, James, and John left behind some vocational responsibilities and family ties in order to follow Jesus. To do something that dramatic or drastic sounds fanatical. They must have been fanatics. And because of our experience, religious fanatics make us nervous because we've seen the news and we know what people that are fanatics religiously are capable of doing. 
I think we all have in our mind this imaginary scale of what it's like to follow your religion. And so on one side, you have those people who claim you know, a certain religious belief, but then they really don't believe it because at least they don't live like they do. And on the other hand, we have those people who almost overbelieve, you know, and have, a, 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 you know, overfollow and just kind of carry it a little bit too far and make us uncomfortable. And so in our minds, we think there's got to be a, more of a compromise here, a happy medium, moderation. You know, we love this idea of moderation in all things. But is that biblical when it comes to following Jesus, that I will follow him moderately? Let me read to you potentially very uncomfortable passage of scripture okay i'm still going to read it to you and it's coming to you from luke 14:26 where jesus says if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother wife and children brothers and sisters yes and even his own life he cannot be my disciple does that sound moderate to you well, maybe we're not reading it right. And you're kind of like, well, what's that mean in the Greek? Maybe when he says anybody, what he means is there'll be a few people that kind of got to go whole hog. The rest of you, you just kind of moderately follow me and you'll be just fine. No. He says anyone, if anyone wants to have anything with, to do with me, you have to hate your father, mother, brother, sister, children, even yourself, or you cannot be my disciple. Now, that sounds really strange. <laughs> What kind of righteous person hates anybody? What kind of Christ follower would hate anybody? Well, friends, you have to understand, Jesus is not calling us to hate actively. He's calling us to hate comparatively. You know, I said I've had these um, messages and sermons I've heard before that have really impacted me that I just, I haven't forgot about them, probably don't talk about them like I should. Well, either the summer before my ninth grade or after my ninth grade year, um, long time ago. I was at a camp here in Columbia. Um, I was from the upstate, but it was here in Columbia. Greg Dupree was the speaker, Adrian Dupree's brother, and Greg was talking about this verse. And I remember him saying, we must love our friends, our family, you know, brothers and sisters to a great degree, greater than anybody else does, but our love for God must be so significant, so devoted, so deep, that if you were to ever compare the two, you would say, it's almost as if you hate them because you love him so much. Tim Keller says, he says, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly that all other attachments in your life look like hate by comparison. On the other hand, you know what I think following Jesus looks like in our society today? I will follow you, Jesus, if my career thrives. I will follow you, Jesus, if my health is good. I will follow you, Jesus, if I'm comfortable at the same time and we can gather in an air-conditioned building on Sundays. I'll follow you, Jesus, if I get to maintain the way I'm currently living. I'll follow you, Jesus, if my family is intact. Well, what's wrong with that kind of motivation? Is your goal Jesus or the thing that's on the other side of the if? Jesus doesn't like to be a means to an end. As a matter of fact, he won't be. He's the goal. If he calls you to follow him, the goal is Jesus. I get Jesus. Obviously, I can only speculate what's going on in the hearts and minds of James and John and Simon and Andrew when they immediately, did y'all notice that? That's how Mark says it. They immediately followed him, immediately dropped their nets. The other uh, writers don't really say that. 
I can't do anything and get immediate response out of it. I don't know if you know this. I have four kids. The oldest is six. And um, it takes me an average of saying something 46 times to even get a response out of them. And then the response out of the kids is, what, Dad? What, Dad? I told you 46 times. Put your shoes on. We're leaving. Huh? You know, so, and it's just so frustrating. I just don't know what that's like. So we're constantly reminding our kids even delayed obedience is disobedience. Did you hear that? Even spiritually, if God calls you to something, even delayed obedience is disobedience. But Mark writes in verse 18 there, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Over in tw- verse 20, immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. Without, um, I think we need to spend a little bit of expounding here, because uh, time expounding all this, because you can say that still sounds really fanatical to me. That all of a sudden this guy walks into their life and they're like, yeah, this looks fun. And they follow him. They must have been crazy. Well, if you, it, it may come across that way unless you understand the difference between religion and the gospel. So let's review. What's religion? It's primarily advice. This is how you should act or the way that you should live if you want to be in right standing with God and earn your way to him. That's what religion says. And as a religious person, you are to follow this advice to the best of your ability. And if you can do that without getting too crazy, we call that moderation, right? But if you feel like you're following Jesus, uh, following Jesus or whatever, following your religion faithfully and completely, then you think, God likes me because I'm doing all the right things. I'm living the right way. And that's what makes him like me and allow me close to him because I'm doing so good. I've done a great job of this. And as a faithful religious person, you start to feel superior to the people around you who are not doing the right things, who are not living the right way. And now you've stepped out onto a very serious, slippery slope. If you feel superior, you begin to avoid people that are not living the way you think they should. And you start to resent, and eventually you start to hate those people. And you actually have a verse to go along with it. And you say, but to follow Jesus means I have to hate them. And there are some people who claim Christianity, and that's the way... They live. And you say, they've gone way too far with that. Let me tell you, I think they have not gone far enough. Let me explain myself. To become fanatical in following Jesus means you are fanatically caring. That you are fanatically humble in the way that you view yourself. That you are fanatically sensitive to people's needs around you. That you are over the top when it comes to understanding people and their needs and what's going on in their life, that you have just gone way too far when it comes to being generous with the things that you have, the time that you have, the resources that you have to offer. The other people treat Christian, Christianity or religion as advice instead of good news. But Christianity is inherently news. You don't have to earn your way to God, but because he did this, it's all his anyways. I'm just going to go whole hog and give him everything because in the end, that's what really matters. Well, we know that these four disciples spent the next three years with Jesus as his closest followers, even his inner circle. But everything came crashing down when Jesus was arrested, tried, crucified, and buried. I mean, the overwhelming odds when that happened was that this little group of Jesus' followers would disband. I mean, after he was executed, their hopes were dashed. To try to continue carrying this message that he taught them would put their lives in danger. 
All four Gospels paint this picture that's very disheartening. You know, as you look at these guys, and they've kind of run into hiding in this moment and retreated away from anywhere where they could be found. And then suddenly, they're not like that anymore. They see an empty tomb. They see a living person walking around, and they begin to understand. See, Sunday changed everything, but not in the way that many people think. You know, the Easter narrative is a very comforting thing for us, but on the first re- uh, recorded Easter in the Gospel, it was not very comforting. It was actually a scary thing. After the resurrection, they were more afraid than they were before he died. And a theme of all of the Gospel accounts surrounding the resurrection is fear. And the reaction wasn't necessarily the same we feel when we celebrate Easter uh, and Christ's resurrection from the dead. It's not the same way. John Ortberg writes, and listen up here, And none of the gospel accounts have Jesus or the angel saying, Now you don't have to worry about dying anymore. I read that again, so I'm going to read it for you. Now you don't have to worry about dying anymore. Well, that's a really interesting thing to me because that's the message we preach around the resurrection all the time. And it's not necessarily wrong, but we say Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Therefore, you too will be resurrected into a glorious hope and we all celebrate and it's a great thing and it's right. But I don't think that's the message that was clearly communicated after Christ was resurrected. I think what we find Jesus saying to his followers, the people who he said, come follow me, and they did, all of a sudden when he comes up out of the grave, you know what he says? We've got work to do. That's what he says. You may feel safer and secure whenever all of a sudden we celebrate Easter, but the lives of Christ's followers did not get safer on that Easter Sunday. Their physical lives got a lot more dangerous. What got released on resurrection morning was not comfort. Um, It was hope, but it was not hope that life would turn out well, that all of a sudden it's okay. Now God's going to take care of you. You you He's going to pad your bank account. Your your life's going to turn out fine. You're going to be healthy. You're going to be safe. You don't have to worry about any of those things anymore. Not even hope that there'll be life after death. That was there, but that wasn't what was clearly communicated. Rather, it was a hope that called people to die. That's what was released on resurrection morning. Do you hear what I'm saying? We must follow Jesus to the cross because that's where he went and we're following him. But we don't just follow him to the cross. We follow him into the grave. And we die. And we die to our sinfulness. And we die to our selfishness. And we die to our desires to hold on to comfort and to be overwhelmed with just trying to be happy all the time. And we die to fear and we die to greed. And many people did follow him there. And these followers came to understand they had a mission or they had a calling. That's a very Christian thing, to have a calling, to be called to a greater task. And their task was to form a community that reflected the presence and power of God that Jesus had taught them about all those times. And to extend the love of this community to everyone around and invite anyone that wants to be involved to join. And do you know what happened when persecution came? They said, we must need to be spread out and carry the euangelion to the uttermost parts of the world. And they did. They carried it to the furthest corners of the known earth at that point. Well, what happened to that movement? It's still going. The movement is still going. And Jesus is still issuing that invitation. Follow me. And the truth is, some of you may have responded to an invitation, but the goal was simply to be able to be at peace with death. Or it may have been that you just were concerned about eternal security. 
But the invitation to follow Jesus is about more than that. The invitation is about believing this good news, this dramatic, world-shattering, life-altering news about what has been done fully in the body and in the life of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, that gives us any hope to be able, even be able to communicate with God and to believe that good news so entirely with your being that you accept the calling to share it with everybody within your sphere of influence and beyond who maybe don't know it or maybe don't understand it about what exactly it is that Jesus has done. And it is to follow Jesus into the tomb where you can die to all of the false ideas that plague your mind and control you. Now, I don't know what those are for you. But salvation is free, but following Jesus costs you. And I believe Jesus is walking very near to us today. And if you're watching uh, TV right now, I think he's walking very near to you. And he's still calling out, follow me. And the question really is, who will follow Jesus today? To the places that he leads that may be very difficult. But the truth is, he's there and he's the goal. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, what a great thing that we can gather here and worship you and to consider your word. I pray that you would speak into our lives. I pray for each person out here. I know many may not be following you now. Let them hear the invitation and let them respond today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to issue an invitation and I want to remind you this invitation every single person here is going to respond to. We all respond to it. If you're joining us by television, you respond to it. So the question is this. Some of you need to hear Jesus say, come follow me. And you need to respond to the good news today. Would you do that and commit your life to Christ? Some of you may need to follow in believer's baptism. Some of you may need to join this church. Some of you may just need to kneel in prayer and kind of with your posture so say, I'm choosing to die to these things that have controlled me for so long. Whatever it is, if you have to make it public, we're going to be down here waiting for you. But if you stay in your pews, you too respond. What's Jesus saying to you today? Let's stand. Our choir's going to lead us in singing. We'll be down here waiting for you.